I knew how to open bars and I knew how to do daily things and I knew how to uh, scheduling and all that. But this was something that I w- that made me scared. And it had been a really long time since I was scared for a job. Hey, you're 86. I'm Justin Myers, and this is a show about how bartenders handle bad situations. Where do you go next in your career? It's a scary question, which I'm also trying to figure out myself. One option is to become a brand ambassador. It's a dream that a lot of us have, but it's not all parties and company credit cards. My guest today is Kelly Rivers. She's been in the industry for 26 years, all over the world. She helped open many bars, including Whitechapel here in the city. And she's now the brand ambassador for Sip Smith Gin. Let's hear what she has to say. Worked and bartended. My first bartending job was in Tokyo. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, get, I usually don't ask the, like, how'd you get into this? And, like, what's your career been question? But this is kind of about career movement this time. Um, so maybe you could just briefly kind of give us a rundown of of your career history in the hospitality industry. Yeah, sure. So uh, it started off when I was really young. Um, as I said, I was born in Oakland. Uh, my father worked for the government. And so when we were th- I was three, we moved to Belgium. We lived there. And then we moved to Germany and lived there for quite a while. And then, um, you know, kind of got to see all Europe. And this was like in the 80s, so the dollar was really, really strong. And so mm-hmm. my father wanted to travel and take take a, uh, like a hold of the fact that we could afford a lot of these things. Um, we came back uh, right around middle school um, to the U.S. and it was kind of a very big culture shock to me. And then, um, but while I was in Europe, my parents both worked for the government. And it's like, Family dinners were sat around the table. My parents would complain about their job. And I was a kid, so I thought, nine to five, unhappy work life. So that was like, I'm never going to do that. Um, and I wanted to be a race car driver. So growing up in Bel- in Germany, we were up on the Autobahn, and you have to have like these stickers on your car that say what country you're from. And of course, anything that said USA, all the Germans with their Deutschmark things would come behind you. They flash your lights, and you have to get out of their way, regardless if you're in the slowest lane. And I just remember on long journeys, whenever we would travel, and my father's always been kind of a cautious driver, um, which now indicates that he's a bad driver. But um, but was, I was just like, would, would like in my mind, why are we losing this race? Why are we losing this race? And so I wanted to be a race car driver, mm. of course, to my parents' dismay. Um, and I actually was, after high school, I was uh, at Sears Point up in uh, Sonoma County, and I was going for my class six racing license when I flipped my car a few times and what ended up happening was there uh it's like really hard the car was gone and when you don't have a sponsorship it's really expensive so there went my racing career Mm -hmm. um so my second backup plan if I was not going to be a race car driver was to be a chef and so I wanted to be a chef I really liked food and but my parents were just like no no you can't be a chef you're gonna go to college I'm like I don't want to go to college I actually got accepted to the Cordon Bleu when I was 16 in Paris and my parents were like no you're not going to France at 16 to go to culinary school you have to go to college like real college but then I had to pay for it so um, cooking was something that I just loved and I was good at and I loved food and I loved the idea of travel and being able to work anywhere in the world and have this common language of food. So I started working um, in kitchens and anywhere I could cook. I had a, like a private 
uh, cheesecake business that I would sell cheesecake to my mother's friends. And it was just really simple. And so I've actually been in the hospitality industry for 26 years. And um, mostly it was like in the kitchens, but I would always bartend on the side because kitchens did not pay well. My first Mm. sous chef position um, at Plump Jack's uh, in the marina, I was making $7 an hour as a line cook. And, you know, the servers were like bringing home thousands of dollars a week. So, yeah, that's kind of how I started into it. I uh, kind of bartended on the side. It wasn't glamorous bartending. And uh, then at one point I got so burnt out with working in kitchens and just everything, there was an opportunity for me to split in one bar, one restaurant, kitchen, and bar. So I did that for a while, and then I really liked the bar. And so I kind of like, well, I'll come back to this cooking thing again. Um, yeah. And then you started at Whitechapel after that. Yeah, so... Uh, I got, I've been bartending full time at the point when Whitechapel opened up, which will be 2015. Um, So we just, they just had their anniversary. Um, I'd been bartending full time without, with cooking being the side thing for about 12 years. And which just as my parents got used to me being a cook and it was cool. I was like, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to be a bartender. (laughs) And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? What is this bartending thing? Um, and so I bartended at a lot of places, and um, and this was like really at the heart of the whiskey, like lots of whiskey. People were just so much whiskey, and I I got to work at Hardwater right after they opened up on the Embarcadero, um, so part of the Charles Fallon Empire. Um, there was a bar and restaurant I worked at in Berkeley called T Rex, where at the time we had the largest collection of American whiskeys. It was a barbecue joint, mm. and so I talked a lot about whiskey, and I realized that a lot of these younger American craft distilleries, while they were waiting for their stuff to age, they were making gin because distillers don't really, there's not much art into to vodka, but gin was something you could make and you could put it into a, a bottle and sell it. And so trying to get whiskey people that were just getting into whiskey, like the really big nerds, that they should look at gin was uh, a test of patience, but also got me to understand a better way to communicate about gin because gin was just something that you didn't really think about. But it, cocktails were really big. Mm-hmm. And so um, I learned a lot about gin mostly because I had to, I always say you had to drink the gin to get the whiskey. And so I had to talk to these whiskey people about why they should bother. And so I started learning a lot of facts and trying to get people to understand the similarities between gin and whiskey or if their vodka drink is vodka and gin. And I just started learning all these just like asinine facts about gin. And I was, I opened up Kin Cow um, and I was sitting, I was at the bar and it was kind of slow. And I had a book of all these like weird gin facts. And it was just a running joke that if it got slow enough, I would just talk to people about gin. <laughs> and Martin, Kate, and his wife were at the bar. And this was before anyone knew about Whitechapel. And I was just telling them gin facts. And so I was their first employee hired after for Whitechapel. Mm. So I guess with gin, it was kind of just a snowball effect. You you started to get into it, and then the more you got into it. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, uh, I've always liked gin. Uh, my grandparents are from the South, so when the sun was out, you drank gin. When the sun went down, you drank whiskey. There was like, <laughs> there's no one or the other. It's always hand in hand, and cocktails, love cocktails. And mm-hmm. gin is definitely the, the, the best spirit to marry, carry, and elevate a cocktail. Um, that's why like two-thirds of all the classic cocktails are made with gin. See, again, asinine facts. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I've always liked it, and I liked the idea of it and the fact that 
gin is the only spirit. It's not about where it's made. It has nothing to do really about terroir. I mean, there's there's things about it, but it's all about where it's been and travel and really like symbolized my life. Like you have to get the juniper from here and the citrus from here and the spices from here. And it is like in a best way possible globalization and civilization kind of moving and working together. And no two gins are alike. I mean, it's a, it's a running joke that, uh, so in my very small one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, I have over 1,500 labels of gin. Because, and they're like, well, why do you have so much? Because everyone is different, mm-hmm. and everyone does something different. And so that's the fun thing about gin is, you know, everyone, what's your d- desert island gin? I, well, I don't have one. That would be very sad, but uh, everything does something differently, and they work together differently. Right. So after, after 26 years in the industry, like what kept you going? This whole time was it? I mean, obviously had a lot of change, and then it seems like you got excited about different things, gin especially. Um, what was it that that kept you from like, no, nah, I'm done with hospitality? Because it's it's such a it's a job that can really wear you down, you know. Yeah, well, when you you start off doing retail, it's you're like, at least I'm not in retail. If I have to go through Christmas in retail one more time, no. Um, <laughs> well, there's a few things. Um, I really like food and drink. So that's that's really great. Like if you like what you did, turned out I was oddly good at it. Like I'm, uh, I've in my career I've opened up thirty bars and restaurants, and a lot of I mean there was times where I opened up two at the same time, like Kinkow and Coachman both opened up within the same week, and I was that sounds exhausting. Yeah, I was doing <laughs> that, and then I was also working at Hardwater still, and so it was just like, you know, this is actually right now in my career is the first time I ever only had one job so it's that's really weird um but I've never not had more than one jobs and I I love the I love systems and I love finding a way to do something faster better easier and you know hospitality work allows you so there's a lot of repetition but there's also a lot of new things you get new faces when you introduce a guest to something that they've never had before and you see that light bulb just turn on that kind of makes up for all some of the other not so great things like the hours and Mm. the uh being on your feet all the time but yeah Mm. so why did you decide to step out from behind the bar into the role of brand ambassador well i'm old um (laughs) (laughs) no it's yeah there's a there was a lot of different things and it wasn't uh something that i came to very lightly um Mm. i have had a lot of friends that have gone into the supplier side or this brand ambassador uh, side. And I saw that it took a lot of toll on them, the, the traveling and the constant moving, but also their relationships. And I happened to, at one point, be dating somebody I really cared about who became a brand ambassador. And although that didn't end our relationship, it was a catalyst because it was very hard to continue this relationship. And so mm-hmm. I had a lot of offers um, from a lot of great brands and companies to become a brand ambassador. And I was just like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And it was, I got an email and a text message from somebody I really care about saying, there's this uh, position opening up with Sipsmith. They're looking for a brand ambassador. Their former brand ambassador was a really good friend of mine, Lilani, had uh, done her tenure and it was time for her to go on to something. And I thought about it, I'm like, Sipsmith is such a great brand. And I could really, because when you become a brand ambassador, you not only have to like and like what you do, but you have to love it because it just becomes who you are. And I've, you know, been a really great fan of the the brand since I felt, uh, got introduced in tw- uh, 2010. 
And I'm like, well, you know, and I'm always take the interview. And so I was traveling a lot with Whitechapel and doing other things, um, which was really great. And so I thought I applied for the job and it didn't. And so it was just kind of a comedy of errors. And by the time I was on the interview, I was told that the position had been filled. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's great. And they were still like, we're really interested in what you have to say about gin as a category, you know, being an expert, an expert in your field, whatever that means. And I was just like, okay. And then somebody from Chicago where the headquarters is came and we had lunch and we had a lovely lunch. And then they asked me to come to Chicago to talk more. I really didn't know it was an interview until halfway through mm. me being in Chicago. And as I was talking about it, I was just like, you know, what, what I was doing. The more I talked, the more I realized that this was something I wanted because I knew how to open bars and I knew how to do daily things. and I knew how to... Uh, scheduling and all that but this was something that I that made me scared and it had been a really long time since I was scared for mm. a job so, so that that was kind of uh you know was the moving catalyst was that I was nervous but it wasn't it wasn't exactly something you were like striving for like because I know a lot of bartenders are like like that's the dream job being a brand uh, ambassador you know it is and it seems like a lot of the ones that do that end up getting burnt out on it it, it is. It's a lot. I mean, do you remember those memes where it was like what my family thinks I do, what my friends yeah. think I do? I was trying to look at the one that I saw for a brand ambassador, which is basically what the industry thinks I do, and it's just an open wallet. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of different... Brand ambassador now means a lot of different things to the industry, to the marketers, to your bosses, to the accountants, which is the hard thing about it. It's like, what, what am I supposed to be... And, I, you know, I, if anyone's listening, they want to have any questions about should this be right, please, you know, reach out because um, there's a lot of things that I knew, but I didn't really know until I got into this job. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to, and what really hit it on the head was Beam Centauri and Sip Smith allow me not only to share my love of the brand, but also my love of the category. Mm. And it would be very untrue for me to go around saying, Sipsmith, although it is the benchmark, I believe, in a London Dry, is the end-all be-all. Because we're even at the distillery trying and, and growing and learning and, and moving what we think is it is. I mean, everything is based on this. but And that was kind of it for me. And I saw the other uh, ambassadors in the company and what they were doing and what the, you know, it wasn't such a tight grip that I was like, this is a part, you know, and people say family a lot, but these are these are people that, care as passionately as I do about what they're doing, but also what is going on around them. Mm. So that was kind of, that was kind of it for me. It's like, you're going to let me be the weirdo that I am and pay me for it. Like, <laughs> and I get to talk about gin. I mean, this is just like spectacular. So it's kind of a, along the lines of what you were passionate about already. You, you just kind of found this company that, that made sense for you, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they believed in me more, at times when I didn't believe in me. And it was just, you know, doing this for so long and seeing how the industry has progressed, like, it's still weird that I get paid to talk about gin. Like, I mean, it's great, you know. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to clock in and clock out anymore and uh, make sure my till is balanced, even though I, I do miss <laughs> that sometimes. But that there is a place where I can just engage with people and explain to them why I love it as much as I do. Mm. But that's the fun part of the job. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what the job actually entails. Um, 
because it seems like this really attractive, glamorous thing. But but what what exactly is like the day to day life of a brand ambassador? It, well, for a brand ambassador, um, I can talk from experience, and uh, for me, changes day to day. Like uh, this morning, I got up and realized that I was going to go do this podcast, and I thought it was in a totally different city. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of that and time changes. But um, so basically, because of my bosses based in Chicago um, are in offices, and so I have a lot of calls between the hours of 10 in the morning, because I'm an hour ahead than Chicago, 10 in the morning and 5 p.m. So there's a lot of emails back and forth, a lot of text messaging, um, calls, um, catching up on emails. I get all the emails from the distillery in London, so that's always fun. My favorite is when they're like, yes, we have uh, flapjacks in the kitchen if anybody wants flapjacks. And I'm like, <laughs> I totally want flapjacks. I just realized also that they were not talking about pancakes. Mm. They're talking about like these oat granola bars. Oh. Like, so um, so there's a lot of that. And then that's kind of when their day's over is when my day starts. Mm. Um, and I do a lot of traveling on the subway and I go see accounts and I just make sure everybody knows. It's basically, I feel like the little kid's sister at dinner time going, hey, hey, remember me? Hey, remember me? And so there's a lot of just like <laughs> popping my head in, ordering a beverage that I don't finish mm. because you're still having to be professional. So those are that's kind of the day-to-day gists. And then there's all the other stuff. Then there's the admin and then the expenses. And then going to the airport because you have to be somewhere and dealing with airport travel, um, dealing with being on a plane. And then when you're in a new market, everything's bright and shiny new. And so it's like two weeks of my normal job compacted into two days because they don't get you very often for very long. And so it's just like we're going to pick you up at the hotel at 8 in the morning, go to the distributors, then we're going to go to lunch, and then there's staff trainings and account visits, and then, then there's dinner, then there's happy hour, then there might be another happy hour, and we'll bring you back to the hotel at like two in the morning, and then we'll pick you up again tomorrow at nine in the morning. And then you do it all again. Mm. Seems like a lot of drinking. <laughs> um, I find that the more you do this in a healthy way, the less I drink. Mm. There's a lot of uh, ordering a beverage, tasting it, smiling, and absentmindedly putting it somewhere where you forgot. <laughs> so this is like a skill you pick up. Yes, it is a skill because um, like, I'm really excited to try what people do um, with Sipsmith and gins in general, and I want, but I am, as I said, I'm old, and um, my body just doesn't bounce back Mm-hmm. As much as it used to, so that those those mild hangovers get to become really big hangovers, which are now two to three day hangovers, mm. and you still have to be um, functional. What are some other challenges that you face in this role? Well, um, what I didn't realize, well, I realized it, but it, not to the extent is when I accepted this job, I had never worked in a corporate setting. Remember mm. when I was a kid, I didn't want to work with corporates. I did everything in my my power not to work in a corporate. So this is my first time in a corporate setting. So that was a challenge, how to talk corporate or mm. how to understand it, um, which I still learn every day. Um, and then I also moved from San Francisco to New York for the job. Um, so that was a lot of challenges of not only starting a new job that I've never had before, but also living in a 
city that I hadn't lived before. And the two of those compounded, um, got really hard. And luckily I had a good support group here that I, when I, I said when I felt like I was going to be walk off an edge or out of a window, I could reach out to somebody and they're like, no, you're fine. This is, you're doing okay. Um, but when you're as a brand ambassador, it's really isolating. You are on the go. Your casual relationships that you would find as coworkers that you see two or three times a week are gone. Um, you are in charge of your own calendar, which is really, really freeing. But as people that work in bars and restaurants know, if you're not constantly moving, that's what work is. And when you don't have that, then you have a tendency to not have that structure. So where I would work, you know, eight hours with emails and things like that, it didn't feel like the same type of work because it wasn't just like constant adrenaline and I got to get it done. So the first year I spent a lot of time working 14 to 15 hour days that I didn't need to. Mm. But I, didn't, I still didn't feel like I was moving the needle forward because it's not just what I have to do, like from A to B, it's distributors and uh, you're working with your sales team and there's a lot of other moving parts and it's not just you. And that's it's really hard to let go of that you can't do anything to make it go faster. Um, so the isolation is hard. Um, and just kind of uh, being just out there on your own and... Um, Making, uh, making new connections in a way that is meaningful and they don't just see you as a checkbook. You, you mentioned reaching out to friends in the industry. Um, what other resources helped you like, move forward in this, in this new role as brand ambassador? Like, what, what did you do? Because obviously it was very different. You mentioned the corporate environment was different. Um, how did you go about handling those things and, and learning what you needed to do to move forward and be successful? Well, when I learn those, I'll let you know. No, um, I'm, I'm still learning. It's uh, things that I learned. Um, I, the Beam Centauri advocacy team, all the brand ambassadors, um, we get together quarterly um, and knowing some people beforehand, but also reaching out, even though I think that, you know, you know, you get, you know, when you work in the industry, you're like, I don't need to go to the hospital. It's just a minor cut. His blood's going down. You know, I've got a concussion. <laughs> right. It's fine. I'll come to work tomorrow. It's just, it's my 14th day in a row. I just did three clopins, you know. Those yeah. are kind of like bragging rights. And we just get so, like, thought of that that's just how it's supposed to be. Like, I don't need to reach out for help because there's nothing, like, majorly wrong going on, mm. you know. And so... I had a lot of people that would see the sheer terror in my eyes or I'd be sitting on meetings and I wouldn't know a word of what anybody was saying. It's you know? like another language. Yeah, it was just like acronyms and number. I'm like, what? Are, like, ask, and you don't want to ask the stupid question, but I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, all right, I'm just going to have to ask them. What does OND stand for? What is OND? It stands for October, November, December, <laughs> the closeout of the year. But it was just like those things. You're like, I don't get it. And so... At least I, there was a lot of people in, in the company that were in my role that had saw that look and recognized it. And so mm. they're like, you know, and a lot of them had said, at any time, feel free. Just reach out. And, you know, they have their own lives and they have their own things. But knowing that that is there, that other people had gone through it, it wasn't just me. Or it wasn't just my ignorance. It was just kind of the way it was, um, was really helpful. And then the community I have here in San Francisco... You know, even though I would like see on social media that they're, you know, they're going on without me. You know, I didn't think it was going to 
collapse, but I could still reach out and like feel a part of something, mm. even though I didn't live there anymore. And that was really grounding that, you know, yes, it does take a little bit of time to create a new community and a new new group of uh, resources, but you don't have to let go of the ones that you moved away from. They're still here. Yeah. I think that's a big thing for bartenders in general, moving on to a different role in their career is we, we get very attached to our identity as a bartender. We don't like change very much. We don't. And we're also, it's like, no, I'm a bartender. I'm part of the industry. And I think a lot of people are scared to like lose that cred or. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's like, oh, I guess so the, the easy one to say um, with the whole things that happened with 50 bests. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what was going on with the 50 best uh, bars in the world. Mm -hmm. They gave an icon award to someone and there was a big outcry globally about, um, about this person should have not been an icon based on remarks that he's made numerous times. And so there was uh, on social media, there was a lot of people who were like, please nominate your favorite or mentor, female mentors and bartenders and, and I'm reading and I'm getting so very like excited and I was feeling so pumped that I see all these great faces that are, you know, legends. But you also see people that in markets that aren't like New York or L.A. and you've seen all these other people that I didn't know, exi- you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't there that I really want to reach out. And then there's a part of it, you know, that you start to get the sinking sensation that I'm not a bartender anymore. That's not that's not my community. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm on kind of this outskirt around it with my, you know, my rolly bag. <laughs> I don't carry a rolly bag. But, you know, that idea of that, right. that supplier that always comes in in the middle of your shift unannounced that wants to try to sell you something where you don't want to be that. And it was hard. It was hard to let my ego go that nobody was praising me on my my bartending skills. And I was just like, well, you, there's a time where you're like, others need to come up. You know, I need to step out of the way to make room for all these other amazing people that I want to support and I want to, like, shine the light on, you know. And that's, that's it's hard to let go, but you have to. Yeah. You know, on the way up, it's the on the way up in the elevator, bring as many people with you as you can. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to get out of the way for them, make mm-hmm. room. So how, how do you stay connected to the hospitality side of the industry? Obviously, you're selling gin to a lot of bartenders, but... um. What are other ways that you that you can still feel a part of it and feel connected and, like you said, help raise up people? Sharing uh, a lot of it is sharing in their wins, like when they've done something or they're celebrating their moment, taking the time to reach out to them personally um, and just congratulate them on it. You mm-hmm. know, just like I saw that this happened. That's so great. I can't wait to see what's next. Um, and just. You know, you don't have to be the one that's under the spotlight to still be there. Um, and you just, you know, can't do it forever. Someone else is going to come behind you and do it. And just being able to acknowledge that mm. and acknowledge what you did while you were bartending. You know, I I really like to think that I did a lot of really great things while I was doing it. But, you know, I can't I can't be the number one or however forever. So you just need to engage in the community know that you're still part of it mm. you mentioned uh those suppliers that walk in in the middle of the shift with their rolly bag rolly bags. um i was thinking about that because that happens to me a lot and i'm like someone walks in and is like hey, he's the owner here i'm like what did you make an appointment it's like why do so many 
people just think, and I was thinking about it actually yesterday. And it's like, well, maybe those are the ones that came from like selling something else and never worked behind the bar. So what did you, what if, what have you taken from your time behind the bar? Of what not to be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little different. So as I said, brand ambassador means a lot of different things lately. So mm -hmm. my role as a brand ambassador for Sip Smith is I am um, part of the marketing team. So I am there to educate and brand awareness. So I'm like a really excited cheerleader. Legally, in the state of New York, I can't sell because I'm a supplier. Um, so I'm a tool to help the salespeople to help do their job more effectively. But working with in different markets, salespeople... And when you're you're with them, they call them ride-alongs. It's like mm. you're like in the car with them all day, and they like going to all these accounts. My favorite part is learning that before we'd sit in the parking lot before we go to an account, and they would say like, "All right, this buyer, this is this, and the traits." And the first time this happened after the day, I like reached out to some of my suppliers when I was buying here in San Francisco, and I'm like, "Okay, what'd you say about me? Like, I know <laughs> you said something about me. What was it? Like, you know." What was it said? Because I really want to know because I wasn't the easiest buyer. Mm. And now knowing that I'm in the other seat, I'm a little bit more sympathetic. But the hard sell, the, the, the drop-in or the um, why are you carrying this versus why are you car not carrying that is a sales tactic, I've been told. Um, and it's so hard for me to talk to a lot of buy, uh, buyers that I'm doing these ride with to explain to them that that's not what a lot of bartenders want. But you also have to understand that's what a lot of bartenders and buyers do want. Mm -hmm. They want to know those things. So us in the craft industry that we're like with our tinctures and our like fancy ice, we are so the minority in this world. I mean, we think that we, we might be the ones that are the influencing of what people around us drink, but that neighborhood bar down the way with 15 flavored vodkas yeah they're doing the volume right and that's how or the nightclub that's yeah just... they're the ones that are just that our sellers are selling to and and doing the tactics and i've actually given um been invited by a lot of like distillers and expos and stuff to talk about how a distiller or a supplier or a salesperson can get past us our our, our snotty or our snootier bartenders and our, our craft bartenders and get on the back bar. I call it front foot to back bar. Mm. And talking about like things that you can do to win over those buyers like myself that see your roller bag and pretend that I am not the buyer. No, buyer's not here, not me. Because <laughs> a lot of bartenders, again, do want to go into this role and are excited about it. Um, what what should you do? Like you're working in a bar, maybe you're managing a bar, or um, what, what would be the first steps to to go towards a career as a brand ambassador well the first thing um i would suggest is always be aware that no matter if you're working behind the bar or you're in somebody else's bar or you're at an event you're on a job interview always mm. so regardless if you're clocked in or not you're you're on an interview um i have gotten i know a lot of really good brand ambassadors that have gotten their jobs based on not their work performance, but their engagement in other people's events and things like that. Um, so that's one. Uh, the second one is know exactly what you want. Like, do you want to be the cheerleader that just goes into the accounts and like 
buys drinks for your friends and uh, does some paperwork and answers, like gets on calls and spreads the gospel of the brand you're working on or brands. Well, those jobs are getting fewer and fewer mm-hmm. as a brand ambassador. And a lot of, you just have to ask the person that is the company or the brand that's talking to you about it and ask them, do they want a brand ambassador or do they want a, they want a sales rep? Because they, a lot of people like, will my performance be judged on the amount of placements that I put? How many times, how many bars or people pick it up or how many cases I'm depleting? Like how much am I, is being sold? And that's, that's a hard one because we get the word brand ambassador and again, we think of I'm the life of the party. Yeah. We're thinking like big Diageo money of like, <laughs> I'm going to have all this budget. I'm going to fly around the world. Whereas opposed to I'm going to Central Valley and I'm going to be in the car for five hours and I'm going to talk to people that really don't care what I have to say as long as the price is right. Mm-hmm. So just know exactly what you want. And if in a, every, any brand says it's a part-time brand ambassador job, we're talking 20 hours a most a month. That has never happened. <laughs> I see those postings a lot. Never going to happen. It's 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 20 hours bef- of maybe paperwork, but not actually being out in the uh, the field. So how do you manage your time then when you're, because you set your own schedule, your own calendar, um, and you mentioned that you just started off like doing too much. Um, how did you, what steps did you take to kind of rein that in, become more efficient. and um, That hasn't happened yet. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's hard. It's like you get super excited when someone calls you and they're like, you know, after I'm, I'm actually on vacation. So, uh, and um, when I go home, I go back to New York, I have a day and a half and then I go in my home market and then I go to Indianapolis because they're like somebody in Indianapolis has said, hey, are you free these days? we're really excited and we want you to talk to the trade. And so you can't, it's like, yes, I want to talk to the trade. That's exactly what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. And I want to do that. But when you do that, you put off all the other stuff that you're supposed to be doing. So some of the best ways I find for managing my time and calendar is to keep a very accurate calendar. I've always been like pen, pen and paper person. But since I get so many things through email, I have like my Outlook calendar and then I have my Google calendar and then Every uh, Sunday while I'm drinking my tea and playing with my cats, I like have my color-coded pens and I write down what exactly I have to do for the week just to remind myself. So there's a lot of pre-planning, like knowing exactly what you're doing. Like when I woke up this morning and thought that this interview was going to be in Richmond, California, as opposed to the inner Richmond, that was not good planning on my part (laughs) of the calendar. I did not the night before. So there's just a lot of like prep work. Mm Mm-hmm. Staying on top of it, colored pens really, really help me. Yeah, uh, I'm a visual person that way. Also, I learned after the first year to keep. We talk a lot about, especially from a supplier and a brand side, work-life balance. That's something we talk about a lot in this industry, but nobody really tells you what that is. Yeah, it's one of those like dead-level abstract. Yeah, it's it's buzzwords. We really believe in work-life balance, but we are going to need you to come in on your day off and work because somebody else hasn't, you know, and of course right. we do it because that's that's the community that we are. And so I started to keep track of all the days that I work past the traditional five-day five day work week. Mm-hmm. And as I'm tracking them, because in, in Beam Satori we're allowed to have flex days where you're like, okay, well, I work this Saturday. I'm going to take Monday off. Um, 
and I, I would just track them down and I realized how much more that I was doing because that's what the job entails and that's just the ethos of a bartender. And I remember having a meeting with my brand at dinner and I was just saying that, you know, this is happening and I just don't feel like I'm doing enough. And someone, re- one of the people in my brand said, Kelly, you've been in this industry for 26 years. Don't you think that's enough? <laughs> like, don't you think you deserve like a six hour day where you're not running around trying to put out fires? Mm-hmm. And that was really hard to hear because, yeah, that sounds great. But, you know, as bartenders, you don't have that luxury because the toilet's overflowing and, yeah. you know, the garbage needs to be taken out and your bar back's two hours late. So a lot of that is just like, just for my own sake, I just write things down and I take a look at it. I'm like, oh, because there's not a lot of measurables as a bartender. You know, you don't, you don't have the, what you rang in that day, you know, kind of how many drinks did you serve um, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so just little reminders that what I'm doing, regardless if it looks like I'm doing a lot is, is quite a lot. Mm. That's a really tough thing to do. You mentioned your previous, um, the previous brand ambassador reached her tenure. Like, what, is, what does that mean, um, and where, where do you go next from uh, Where point? do you go next? That's always a hard question. You know, when I was bartending before I took this role, and when I was still, I'm not going to be a brand ambassador, I spent a lot of time of what is next in my career. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really want to own a bar, um, and I'm just like, well, what? I can't be a bartender when I'm 70, but based on how much money I don't have to save in my retirement, that really dirty word, retirement, I'm going to be a bartender when I'm 70 kind of a thing. So what is next? Um, and even when you're in a supplier role, there's always that thing because they're always talking about your your personal growth development. Mm-hmm. They want to nurture. We're going to hire within kind of thing. And as a brand ambassador that did not go to school for marketing or business or anything, um, that's a really good question. And um, a really good friend of mine, she was a brand ambassador for for a while and she got really good. And she actually created her own position where she is now engaged in the Beam Centauri portfolio, all trade engagements. Because what she really loved about what she did and what she was excellent at was throwing events, especially Mm -hmm. towards trade because she could speak the trade and the trade loved that. And so she wanted to make the most of those engagements to make it worth the money for the brands, but also worth the time that bartenders are taking out of their day. Or if I'm going to take a day off of work, it's got to be something that I need. And as we see more and more brands really understanding that trade is very important, there's more activities for the bartenders. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, I was going to RSVP for this thing, but... I'm really tired and there'll be something else tomorrow or the next day. So I'm just not going to show up, which is the worst thing you guys can do from a supplier side. Now I apologize to anybody I RSVP'd and did not show up. (laughs) I understand how much work and effort went into it now, but so she just wanted to very much create meaningful programming. But so she Mm -hmm. took what she loved about being a brand ambassador and created a job and enough people believed in her and she believed in it that it became a position. Mm. And so when I think about what's next for me in a, in a supplier or a brand ambassador role, it's kind of how brand ambassadors started. It was somebody saying this should happen and somebody believing in them. So where I'm going to be from now or what's next for me, I don't know because I haven't 
made it yet. I haven't put that formulated plan. Mm. That sounds like an exciting place to be in. Though. It's also really terrifying. <laughs> like, like it's like one recession away of being irrelevant. Uh, but there's so much more I could do. Yeah. How do you deal with your? Because you, when you first started this job, you mentioned you were terrified, and then oh, still terrified. Um, so how do you deal with uh, with your emotions around this change? And because. I think for a lot of bartenders and myself included, it's very comfortable to just like, yep, I can clock in, I can do the thing, and then I can clock out and like do it again tomorrow. Um, but just knowing, and I'm kind of at that point myself where I'm like, oh, what the hell do I do next? And well, what made you start this podcast? It's that exact thing is like, oh, I can't bartend forever. I got to do something. I'll try this. Yeah. Um, but how do you handle emotionally like that? Um. Well. <laughs> emotionally I have personally not having this one job and having a little bit more time I've learned routines are really fun so I have a, a morning routine that I do um, I've taken up meditation so if anybody mm. knows me that's super weird but when you're in a hotel like I've been in hotels where I've gotten up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and walked into a window because I thought I was in a different hotel mm-hmm. Wow. And the, that's where the bathroom was last time. I remember one time I was getting off the plane in San Francisco and I was in a different part of the terminal that I'd never seen before. And my flight landed in San Francisco. I got on the flight knowing I was landing in San Francisco and I still was like looking around for something that I recognized at the gate and actually had to ask somebody if I was at SFO. Wow. Because there's just a lot of that. So routines are, are kind of life force. So like, And also knowing when to shut off. Like, that's really important. I haven't learned it since I'm on on vacation and and still answering all my work emails in the car. Mm. But knowing when to be like, there's nothing else I can do right now. Yeah. And just shut it down. And that's, it's a hard thing for bartenders to do because even when you're sitting in someone else's bar, you notice that table needs to be bussed. Mm -hmm. You notice there's some napkins on the floor. You hear and, the receipt printer. And yeah. Like, oh, and there's so like, many tickets there. You feel just anxious for everybody. Right. You're like, what can I do for you? Yeah, that's why I don't go out anymore. I just, I just drink at home. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a lot of that. And the other things is, you know, have have an anchor. Like have something that is outside of work, like outside of the industry that you can hold on to that gives you pleasure or joy that you can escape in when you need to. Mm. That's really great advice. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Well, thanks so much for having me. Cheers. That was Kelly Rivers. It's important to know what exactly you want and what you don't want. Take some time to write down a list of things that are important to you in your career and see what you learn. I also really liked Kelly's advice about treating every interaction you have in this industry like it's a job interview. You never know who you'll meet and what it might lead to. That's all for this week, but stay tuned for more. And don't forget to check us out online, ure86.com. That's Y-O-U-R-E-86.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.